appreciate that, sir. All right, Revelation 7, we're, we're kind of picking up where we left off a, uh, a few weeks ago now, and we're not going to make it super far this evening, but uh, the last time that we were studying Revelation together, we were in uh, chapter 7, we were talking about that multitude, and just you know, for a quick recap, remember that uh, God is revealing all this stuff to, to John, and then all of a sudden he hears the, the, the number of those who are sealed. Remember, he hears it, 144,000, but then he turns around and what does he see? He sees this innumerable multitude, uh, and it's kind of a callback to hearing about a lion and turning around and seeing a lamb. And we said that these are two descriptions of the same group, that the 144,000 and the innumerable multitude uh, refer to the same group, and we had a bunch of uh, lessons on that, so you can find those online if you need to play catch-up. But we were getting into verse 9, and, and this is what it said, just for a recap. It said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we said that, that the reason that they're dressed in white there and they've got these palm branches, it was a symbol. Both of these were symbols for victory. Uh, white also being a symbol for purity and cleansing, but, but white and the palm branches, symbols of victory. So you have this huge crowd standing there and they are standing there victorious. And if you'll remember, we said that the amazing thing about this is that they're not there bragging about themselves, right? They're not part of this crowd going, praise the Lord, I was at church every Sunday. Praise the Lord that I filled out that card and I walked down the aisle and I did this and I did that. They are literally saying, praise the Lord, salvation belongs to God alone and to the Lamb. The whole reason that they're there, the whole reason that they are victorious is because Jesus is victorious and they get to share in Jesus' victory. And so we were, we were explaining that, but we didn't get a chance to, to talk about the implications that it has for us as the church today and, and as the people of God today. And so I just want to ask you, when you read something like that, it's, it's one thing to read it and go, okay, that's our future, that's the end goal of the gospel, that's where we're headed, and think that all God is doing is providing us with a picture there, because underneath the picture... There are implications for the church today. Here's my question. What are some of those implications for us today? What bearing does this have on our life today? Okay. Yep, concept, but yeah, press it forward. Now, now make it personal to the church, Doug. Exactly what you said. He's talking about all these tribes, nations, tongues, languages. Salvation is open to anybody from any place, not just one group of people. So what does that mean for us? What must we do? Believe in Christ, okay. Joseph? Evangelize all types of people. That's the implication for the church today. If you see, imagine like you've got a puzzle box, right? And you, I don't know if you like doing puzzles like Anna and I do. That's a fun date night for us is puzzling an audio book because we're 
82. So, <laughs> but you, you, you dump out all the pieces, and as you're putting it together, what do you need to do? You look at the box to see what the final product's going to look like, right? No one looks at the final product and then goes, oh, well, I don't need to put the pieces together because I see what it's going to look like at the end. No, if you want it to look that way, what do you have to do? You've got to put the puzzle together. You've got to do something. And so God's given us this vision of the end goal of the gospel here, what is going to be the reality in the very end. But in order for that picture to become a reality, it means that we have to do something now. We have to go and reach all people for Christ. And listen, I know that's something that we throw around a lot in church. That's something we say a lot in church. And everybody wants to say, amen, I get it, I agree. But it's a lot harder when you take it to the personal level, isn't it? Because it means that you aren't just to go and reach people that you're comfortable with. You're not just to go and reach people that you feel comfortable around. People that you like. The type of people that you want to see in heaven. It means that you have to go to the people who do make you uncomfortable. It means that you've got to pray for the people who sometimes tick you off. The people that you don't necessarily want to be praying for. It means you go and pursue those who are directly opposed to God and His kingdom and to Christians. And those are the people we are called to go and reach. Uh, I literally had someone say to me one time, this is, this is an honest-to-God quote, and I'm just going to read it to you. And Well, it's being recorded, so if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. But <laughs> this was the quote. Someone said this to me. Why do you focus so much on people in other countries? Why don't you stop worrying about Africa and focus on our own area. Now, I did clean up the language a good bit because the original quote had a lot of other language in it, but that was a quote that was actually said to me. Why don't you stop worrying about Africa and start focusing on people around here? And my response was because people in Africa need the gospel just as much as people around here do, and they don't have the access that we do. There's this undercurrent of animosity towards people that we don't necessarily like, right? We, we have this idea of, of, I've got the type of people I want in heaven. I've got my friend group. I've got people around here that I'll talk to Jesus about. But then when you realize that people in Africa are our responsibility, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, every people, they are the church's responsibility. So it doesn't matter if we are in Africa or if we're in Easley. They are still people who need the gospel. Now, obviously, we do focus on people around here. We do stuff for our area all the time. But we're not going to neglect those who have no access to God's word to give a bunch of people who do have access to God's word more access to God's word. At least the people in Africa will cry tears of joy when they get a Bible. You give someone a Bible around here, they might rip out a paper and roll up a doobie. You don't know. I've seen a guy do it. <laughs> You just, you don't know, but, but the point is this, is that we don't get to pick and choose who we share the gospel with. That's not up to you. God did not say, all right, hey, listen, you know about Jesus, so just go find the people that you're comfortable around, the people who are easy to talk to, the people that are nice and friendly, and you go tell them about Jesus. He said, go tell everyone. Make disciples of all nations. And so that's what we've got to do. We've got to reach all people with the gospel, but, but there's another implication here that I want us to understand. It's, it's not just that we go, it's that we as a church here in Easley, we need to be promoting and encouraging a multicultural, 
multi, multi-ethnic community of believers. I mean, that's what it looks like, right? You know what amazes me? And, and I've probably said this before, so forgive me. What amazes me is that the majority of Southern Baptist churches on a Sunday morning will look nothing like heaven looks like. And that should be concerning, should it not? I mean, it should be really concerning for us when, when a, a church is gathering and it's supposed to be a glimpse of heaven on earth and it looks nothing like what heaven's going to look like. Because heaven is not going to be filled with only middle-class white people. That's not it. It's going to be this, this multi-ethnic, multicultural group. But, but here's, here's my word of caution on this. There's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way to do this. Because a lot of people in our world today want to talk about multiculturalism, uh, multi-ethnic, all that kind of stuff. And you can fabricate that a good bit. Right? This is what no one wants to talk about when it comes to popular church movements. Because you can go into some of these big churches and they will be multicultural, multi-ethnic. But they have gone out and, and basically pursued this as though... This is the end-all, be-all. We have to be multicultural. We have to be multi-ethnic. And if we're not, then we're not a true church. But the point is that a local church is supposed to be a representative body of its community. And so if your community is primarily white, then your church, if it's primarily white, it is actually representing the community in a good way. That's not to say that you turn people away, but that's not to say that it's not a true church because it's not multicultural, multi-ethnic. Does that make sense? You can, you can fabricate this just for the sake of putting multiculturalism on a pedestal. But if you're living in an area that is not primarily white, and it does have people from other ethnicities and races and cultures and things like that, then the church in that community should look like that community. And if it doesn't, then the church is failing to do what it's called to do and be who it's called to be. This is something that we should encourage. So so there is a wrong way to do it, but the right way to do it is that if we have people who do not look like us come through these doors, we don't turn them away or make them feel bad because they don't look like us. I'm going to be preaching on this in two weeks, so more on that later. But but the point is that any person should be uh, able to walk through these doors, whether they are white, black, Asian, Hispanic, anything else, whether they are rich and dressed in an Armani suit, whether they are poor and they have holes in their jeans, which are my favorite kind, you know, and they're just walking through, it doesn't matter. They should be welcome amongst God's people because God's people come from all tribes, all tongues, all nations, and all people. And so we should be encouraging this And it really gets down to the root of what's in our heart. Because if you look at people of color and people of different races differently than you do people who look like you, then it means we have failed to understand the gospel. Because here's what's interesting. When the gospel was first being proclaimed, we would have been the people who didn't look like everyone else, right? If we had been over there with Jesus and his disciples and his apostles, we would have been the odd man out. They were not white. Thankfully, we don't have one up right here, so this is good. But the the popular picture of Jesus being this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, that's not him. He's from the Middle East. He's a Jewish man. And he looks like Middle Easterners do today. And so we would have been the odd people out. Imagine that we wouldn't have been welcome amongst the early church because we looked the way that we look. Can you help the way that you look? 
Can a leper change his spots? No, you have no control over that. So why on earth would we hold that against someone when we should be telling them how to be saved and reconciled to God in Christ? So there are deep implications here. The, the, the big one here, though, that I want you to understand, it's not just that we go out and evangelize to see this goal realized. It's not just that we promote this multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, mixed assembly of believers, but we have to make sure that people know the one true way of salvation. Which means that every person in here, whether deny or on Sunday morning, you have to know the one true way of salvation. And that, again, that sounds like an easy thing, right? I mean, look at us, we're Christians. We're in the South. Everybody knows the gospel around here. Everybody knows about Jesus. Everybody knows Jesus died on the cross. But that doesn't get at what the heart of the gospel actually is. Because it's not just, do you know that Jesus died on a cross? It's what are you trusting in for your eternal salvation? And if you talk to the majority of people in our area, you know what their response is going to be. You ask someone, hey, you tell me right now, you die today, are you going to heaven? Of course I am. Okay, what makes you so confident? How can you say with such confidence that if you were to die today, you are going to be in glory with God forever? And they'll say, because I've been in church my whole life. I know Jesus died on the cross. When I was eight years old, I prayed a prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I filled out a card. I walked down an aisle. I was baptized. And I've never been worried about it since then. Cool. How have you been living since then? Has there been any indication at all that God came into your heart and made you a new person? Has your lifestyle reflected this change that has taken place? Because salvation is the greatest change that can happen to someone, correct? Conversion is literally you were dead in your sins and God made you alive in Christ. Imagine you walk into a morgue and you were surrounded by a bunch of dead bodies, okay? You're expecting everybody to be dead. Imagine one of those corpses sat up. That's going to be crazy for you, right? You're going to be jumping. That's a life-altering experience. It shouldn't do that. Corpses should not do that. You're going to be visibly changed by that experience. If you were a dead person and you've come back to life, that's worth talking about. There's going to be a noticeable difference there. I heard one preacher say, uh, he, he was preaching somewhere, and he said, imagine I was late. And he said, you know, and I gave the excuse, well, I was on my way, I was trying to get here on time, but as I was on my way, I got hit by a bus. And so that's why I'm late. And he said, the person who invited me to look at me and goes, you don't really look like you were hit by a bus. <laughs> like if you were actually hit by a bus, there would be something noticeable here. There's some broken bones, you're walking with a limp, you're pretty dirty or something, but, but you don't really look like you've been hit by a bus. Because if you were hit by a bus, that would be apparent to everybody, right? And if you were truly a Christian, that should be apparent to everyone. And so my question is not, do you know that Jesus died for you on the cross? My question is not, do you believe that there is a God? My question is, what are you trusting in? What is your hope in? What is your confidence in for your eternal salvation? And if it's anything other than the fact that Jesus lived for you and died for you and rose for you and is now interceding for you, you have no hope. You've misplaced all of your trust. Which is what, what is happening with so many today, right? Again, we say that we know the message of salvation. We're like, and so I'm telling you, like we've got to know it. People say they know it. But then look at, look at people like my friend who walk away from the faith. 
They knew the message of salvation, and they traded it in for something else. And, and so we're just in this culture now where we're telling people, as long as you have a Bible, as long as you go to church, as long as you try not to do a bunch of bad stuff, and you do try to do a few good things, you're good. You're going to heaven. And we have led people astray. I've talked with people. It would disturb me how many people I've talked to as a pastor who have come to me and I'm talking with them, I'm counseling them, and they've said, Pastor, I'm not worried about my salvation. I give a tithe every week. I'm here as often as I can be. I've been in this church. I've been a good member of this church for this long. I'm not worried about it. I've even done this. Did you know I gave this to do this? I'm part of the reason we have this today. I've done this and this and this and this. And I'm imagining them standing in this final crowd and they would be the only person going, salvation is due to me because I did it. Look at all the things I did, pastor. I deserve to be here. If you think you deserve to be in that crowd, you will not be in that crowd. The only people who will be there are the people who proclaim for the rest of eternity, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Because we had nothing to do with it. Did you save yourself? Could you save yourself? No. And if you put any confidence or hope in the things that you were doing, you're lost. Our only confidence is in Christ alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, right? Simply to thy cross I cling. That is all our hope. And so listen... If we want to see this be a reality, we have to make sure that we know the one true way of salvation because there is only one. And our world is awfully confused about it. So that's what the implications are for us. We want to be part of this crowd one day. God willing, we will be. If you're a believer in Christ, you will be amongst this multitude. But it's the picture on the puzzle box, right? In order to make it a reality, we have to go and reach all people for Christ. We have to promote this multicultural, multi-ethnic, mixed body of believers, and we have to make sure that people know the actual way of salvation, the one true way. Because we don't want to be in a situation where we're leading people astray. You remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders at the end of Acts? He said, I have not stopped proclaiming the gospel amongst you. He says, I, I have not failed to proclaim the, the gospel amongst all of you. And so he said, my hands are clean of your blood. All the blood that could be bestowed on you because of the wrath of God that has become. He said, my hands are clean. My question is, can we say that about the people in our lives? That's what I want us to walk away from this passage thinking about tonight. When you think about your family members, when you think about your neighbors, when you think about your friends, when you think about your co-workers, can you say that your hands are clean of their blood? because you have not failed to share the gospel with them. That's Michael Stevenson, word of wisdom, and then you close us in prayer.